everyone. Welcome back to ARCS Chat. My name is Robin Bauer Kilgo. I am the Association Manager for ARCS. A couple of quick tech tips. Um, as we live stream this talk, there is a slight delay between the actual meeting and then as it beams out to YouTube. So just know that if you're chatting along in the comments that um, there's a little bit of a delay. So just heads up on that. And a couple of quick programming notes when it comes to ARCS. Um, you can now register for our virtual conference. It's happening in November. Two weeks of programming. It's pretty much the biggest conference we've ever done with, my gosh, over 35 sessions, networking opportunities. If you're a member of ARCS and only a hundred dollars for fuel access so i really encourage you to go over and register for that conference we're looking fun we're looking really forward to it um, we also have an event on september 30th it's called ask the art lawyer it's actually connected to the contract service agreement that you can now purchase on the website um, the lawyer who actually helped to develop it is going to be available to answer questions on that service template so if you're interested in rsvping for that event just go to our website arcsinfo.org so i'm going to go ahead and turn off my camera and hand this over to one of the hosts of ArchChat, John Robinette. Thanks, John. Thank you, Robin. Welcome, everybody. This is exciting to be back. Uh, very, very exciting because uh, Arcs Chat is going to take on a new um, a new patina this year. And uh, you know, to get things started, we have a wonderful panel of uh, guests uh, with us today. And um, first off, I want to introduce our regular co-host uh, Amanda Robinson. Hey, John, it's Amanda here coming to you from the Museum of Fine Arts in St. Petersburg, Florida. Fantastic. And uh, joining us uh, is two new uh, ArcsChat uh, panelists uh, that were, will be with us for the rest of the season. Uh, I want to first introduce you to Meg Thomas. Tell, Meg, uh, tell us where you're from and a little bit about yourself. What do you do? Hi, everyone. Yeah, uh, my name is Meg Thomas. Uh, I am from Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, and I am happy to somewhat announce that uh, I will be taking up a position at the Delaware Art Museum uh, later this uh, month. Fantastic. So, Congratulations. Thank you all. And Kristen, join us. Tell us, uh, tell us about yourself. Hi, I'm Kristen Guinan-Wiley. I recently graduated from uh, the George Washington University Museum Studies Program, and I am soon to be uh, starting contracting work with the National Museum of Natural History at the Smithsonian. Fantastic. So Meg and Kristen are going to be uh, sharing some of the hosting duties as we go along this season. And um, so they are fully integrated into uh, the chat. So we want to welcome them. Uh, as always, of course, you know, post your questions in the chat. So um, today our topic is restitution and uh, repatriation. So um, of course, we've uh, seen uh, quite a lot of uh, very public repatriation cases uh, and restitution cases happen um, over the last year. And uh, to find out more about that, we thought we'd go to the expert um, from the Institute of Art Law. Uh, the Assistant Director, Alexander Herman, is with us here today. And um, Alex is, uh, the, U the Institute of Art Law is from the United Kingdom, though Alex is based um, in Canada. He is the Assistant Director and oversees all of the academic content there. But for the purpose of, purposes of our discussion today, he's also coming out with a book called Restitution, The Return of Cultural, Cultural Artifacts. So this is going to be released later this fall. So Alex, welcome to the program today. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Um, so we want to, basically, we'll, we'll start at the very beginning and define rest, um, restitution for our uh, audience here. 
Yeah. So, I mean, restitution is an interesting term because you often hear it bandied about in the museum sector and the cultural sector at large. Um, but the truth is the way it's used, the way it's discussed in, in our sector, um, it doesn't have a consistent definition. It doesn't have a legal definition. Mm. Um, there is something known as restitution in, in the legal world uh, if you go to court. But I think what, what is usually being discussed in relation to museum objects and the return of museum objects to their countries of origin or communities of origin, uh, it goes a little bit beyond the strict legal definition. So it's in a way, it's a term of art that's used. Um, I usually like to define it as the return of cultural objects as a way of doing justice for a past wrong or a continuing wrong that's been committed. So there's an element of, of injustice that has been committed maybe sometime in the historical past or the recent past. And we see restitution as a way of trying to make amends for, for what happened in, in the past um, through the return of, of the particular object. Great. Okay. So um, we need to clarify one thing, and this is something that I get confused on all the time, is what's the difference between restitution and repatriation? Yeah. So those are two terms that, again, sometimes they're, they're used interchangeably. Certainly, if you read media reports, you, you, you hear about a repatriation to another country, you hear about a restitution, um, sometimes involving Nazi looted art uh, going back from a museum to a family. Um, there, again, repatriation is a slightly different term. Um, in the U.S. context, which is where most of your listeners are based, obviously, um, repatriation does have more of a legal connotation because of um, repatriation of Native American uh, material, including human remains. Um, you have a, an important law, NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection Repatriation Act from 1990, which probably the vast majority of your listeners are, are familiar with. And so there you have repatriation is actually a, a legal obligation placed on, on certain museums um, that receive federal funding in the, in the United States. So repatriation tends to have more of a legal connotation in the U.S. Um, but outside of the U.S., repatriation is often used as, as a term. I like to think of it as meaning the return to a homeland. Um, if you break down the word repatria, patria is Latin for fatherland um, or homeland. So the return to a place. So it's slightly different. I think conceptually, it's slightly different from restitution. As I said earlier, restitution is more about a past or continu continuing wrong that's been committed, whereas repatriation is about the return to a place, like it's being returned to a place, potentially regardless of whether there was some injustice involved in its, in its removal in the first place. So there, I, th I think people in the sector have to, have to take these, these terms with a grain of salt, with the exception of repatriation in the, in the Native American context, just because they're, they're often used interchangeably. Um, they don't have strict definitions, certainly legal definitions. And so I think it's, it's just important to, to be relatively consistent if you're at a museum and you're developing a policy or you're acting on a policy, it's just to be consistent in terms of the, the terminology used. Um, you could probably tell just by the title of my book that you plugged for me. Thank you, yeah, John. Of course. Um, I, I went with restitution just because I think that's a term today, like in 2021, that, that fits most with, with the kinds of activities that are taking place with those, those returns that are, that are occurring you know, almost as we speak. I think they are returns um, with, an, with an intention of doing justice for a past wrong. So I think it mm -hmm. fits neatly within that, that matrix under, under restitution. 
Gotcha. So, so would it be safe to say um, that, say, for a case of restitution, for example, um, that could be the return of objects, say, that were looted by, looted by the Nazis, but repatriation would be the return of objects more to um, a government, right? So maybe something that was, um, you know, uh, looted by uh, by the British Army or something like that in, in, in a past war. Is it is it something like that or is it even that important to to define the difference well i think i mean you sometimes you do see that that distinction being made restitution being a return to say an individual or a family yeah. like in the nazi looted art example you mentioned and then repatriation to to a place remember the patria so that could be the country the government of the country um, I think you know sometimes that distinction is is made, but again, I just stress the point that it's it's not it's not really a legal distinction or a terminological distinction. It's just yeah. it's just the way people use these these terms. I think generally what we're speaking about is the return of cultural objects right. um, either to a, a community or a country of origin or to an individual or or a family. Yeah, and so by by definition, does it? In, in these cases, does the a wrongdoing have to actually be acknowledged in order to go through with these things with with a restitution case? I mean, almost by implication, right? But um, and do they typically acknowledge a, a wrongdoing in the past? Uh, it's it's a really important aspect of it. I I actually think the the answer is probably going to be case by case, and it mm-hmm. will depend on the relationship that's built up between, let's say, the museum on the one hand and the the claimant on the other and what the claimant's needs and requests are. So sometimes it is about that acknowledgement. Um, In other situations, maybe that that acknowledgement is not as important because they just want the thing back for, I don't know, ceremonial purposes or in relation to family history or family tradition. There there are reasons why they would want it back. And they're not so concerned about an official apology or, or, or an official acknowledgement. So I think mm-hmm. it's case by case, but, but it is important. And it's good that you brought it up early because sometimes based on the relationship between the parties, you need to, you need to work whichever side you're on. You need to work to show respect for the other side. And I think that's, that's often an important way of, of doing it. And sometimes it might not even involve a return in the end. It might yeah. really just be about acknowledgement. And you see in some museums in the labeling, it might be a question of just recognizing the history of a particular object. Maybe it was owned by a particular family or by, you know, as part of the practices of a particular community. And maybe it's just about acknowledging that in the labeling or online. That might not be sufficient, but that could potentially, based on the relationship that develops, that could be um, one of the end results. Right. I imagine, as you said that, I just had the thought that it's probably part of the negotiation of the return where, you know, some cases they probably want the objects only and they don't care about the apology. In some cases, they they demand the apology more or as part of the whole thing. But um, if uh, anyone out there listening has been involved with uh, a, a case of restitution, uh, repatriation, or has any questions, please, you know, go ahead and put them in the chat if you need a... If, uh, if you're not already, sign in with your Google or your Gmail account to participate in the chat and uh, let us know what you're thinking about. Um, so let's let's go a little bit deeper here. I was thinking, so is it just me or is there a large group of recent repatriation restitution cases that happen lately? Or has it always been the case? Um, they just didn't get didn't make the headlines. So what, what's going on here? Did something change? 
Um, I think you'll be happy to hear it's not just you, John. It's, okay. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's something broader that's, that's happening in, in, our, in our society. Um, and there are a number of reasons for that. Um, one of them, I mean, this is more technological, but I think the internet has had a big impact. I think uh, collection, I mean, you know, and, and people who work in collections know, um, details, information about collections are being pushed out far more now than they, than they ever were in the past, and that's only going to continue. Um, so people in far corners of the world can learn about, you know, an item that might have come from their community or from their family in a way, um, you know, almost instantaneously, in a way that they simply could not 10 years ago, let alone 20, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, in those early days, I mean, it would have been very costly and time-consuming to try to just inform oneself enough to bring a claim. Now that kind of information is being pushed out directly by by museums and collections. So that comes onto people's computer screens and they're able to to learn about what is being held by, by different institutions. So I think that's one aspect of it. And that's mm-hmm. certainly we felt, you know, the, the effect of that over the last couple of years. Um, the other one is in terms of law enforcement, because sometimes when we talk about restitution, it's not just in the museum context, which is I know what our focus is today, um, but it's also in the trade, in the antiquities trade um, and in the art trade. And I think that um, different law enforcement agencies around the world are collaborating now at a level that they just were not doing even five, 10 years ago. So, you know, whether it's the FBI, CIA, Interpol, Europol, uh, the Carabinieri in Italy, uh, the authorities in Egypt or in India or in Thailand, um, there's just far more collaboration. Now, again, I think that's partially driven by technology and just the ease of communication now. Um, and so that's meant that there are more stops, there are more seizures, there are more restitutions from, let's say, dealers or middlemen or people who are actually looting themselves in, in countries of origin. So I think that that is another you know, cause of, of the, the, let's say, the avalanche of, of restitution stories recently. Um, and then I think the, the final point about that is just that the landscape has changed, the mentality has changed. I think now um, it, it's almost like those people who believe in retaining objects are on the defensive. They have mm. to kind of justify their position. Whereas it used to be, you know, let's say 10 years ago, it used to be the opposite. It was really an uphill battle for anyone who was claiming restitution, even if they were within a museum context, even, you know, someone working in a museum, I think it would, would institutionally very difficult to, to bring up this idea of maybe the best place for an item is not in the collection or in the storerooms, but might be back with the community or back with the family. Yeah. Um, I think those, those arguments were much harder to make even internally in a museum back then. Whereas now I think the, just the, the zeitgeist has changed. And so it's, it's almost harder to say, no, no, let's keep this object no matter what, no matter what the history was, no matter what the claim might be. So, so I think those all taken together, ch- change in technology, uh, collaboration internationally between law enforcement agencies, and then lastly, the, this shifting mentality has meant that we've seen more claims as a result. Yeah, gotcha. Um, I have a follow-up question to this, but before we do that, uh, Amanda, um, what's going on in the chat? Is there anything, any questions or comments from our listeners? No explicit questions, just um, another input on terms of definitions. One of our uh, listeners had stated that restitution is the return to the rightful owner, whereas repatriation is the return of someone or something to a country of origin. So maybe just another way of looking at those terms right and how they're defined gotcha gotcha 
I, I, and, and also to Alex's point, I, I imagine that it's um, maybe it even just depends on what country, right? Each country possibly defines it differently. It, it, you, you sort of implied that the United States has a more strict policy, right? Um, for restitution, repatriation, um, a strict well, definition. Yeah, on on re- repatriation specifically in the, in the NAGPRA Native American yeah. uh, context, uh, just it. because it's, it's actually provided in legislation. Right, right. Gotcha. All right. So, um, continuing, uh, the, the previous, uh, train of thought, uh, you mentioned greater collaboration, um, and, and maybe even the zeitgeist. Were there a few or maybe even just one landmark case of uh, restitution that would have provoked this, this new awareness and this desire to collaborate more and, and create a new zeitgeist? Are there some landmark cases? Yeah, I think, well, w- what's interesting here is that in a sense, the landmark cases, um, and they tended to be judicial cases, the cases that went to court, um, were, were about 15 to 20 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. There was an important case in the United States, in New York, uh, involving Frederick Schultz, who was an antiquities dealer and quite well regarded up till that point. He was the head of the Antiquities Association um, in the U.S. at the time. And he was prosecuted and found guilty for dealing in uh, looted Egyptian antiquities. Um, that was 2003, the Schultz prosecution. So that, that started to signify a, a sea change. Um, and then in the UK, there was a slightly different case um, involving Iran claiming back antiquities that had been looted. It was a civil case, not a criminal prosecution. But some of the principles were the same. And I think from about that time, like 2003, 2005, 2006, um, you started to see a, a shift taking place, a, I would say a, a legal shift, where the onus again started to move from from the, the claimant more to the, to the possessor, where the possessor had more of an uphill battle to try to prove that they they are the rightful rightful owner of of property. And so that happened, you know, 15 20 years ago, so not yesterday, but I think it took a while for for those effects to have a a trickle down impact on you know the way people operate in the trade, the way people operate in law enforcement, the way people operate in museums. So it it took a while, but I think as you got to sort of 2016 2017 it was already well established. The landscape to, had had already had already shifted, and I think one of the triggering, you know, uh, causes of of what we're seeing now um, has to be the the speech by um, the French president Emmanuel Macron in 2017. He went to Africa um, right after he became president of France, and he he made this very long speech about you know um, enforcing uh, collaboration between between France and, and African countries. And he, he mentioned that there should be restitution, and he said permanent or temporary restitution within the next five years of African heritage back from France to Africa. And even though that was said in a very specific context about France and about basically Francophone West Africa, the, the French-speaking countries of Africa, it had a huge impact. I'm sure you and all your listeners you know, felt that when that, when that happened, 2017. Suddenly, it was just part of the discourse, and people were talking about that. Um, in the European context, that meant more open discussions about decolonization and the former colonies that European countries held. I think in the U.S., it might have had a slight have a slightly different coloring to it, but it was basically 
um, a similar sort of approach that now we need to be very honest about where things came from, how they were removed from their countries of origin, potentially by violence or by some kind of subterfuge. And, and that needs to be engaged with much more directly than it had been in the past. So I think the, the Macron speech 2017, there was then a report that was, that was issued about a year later um, by, by two authors in France. And that, again, got the, got the conversation moving. So I think those, those particular examples were, were, were instigating factors in terms of what's, what's now taking place. Where, I mean, literally, I would say not a, two or three weeks go by without the announcement of a major return or restitution of some sort um, somewhere in the world. So museums, I think, are taking this much more seriously. Uh, police and law enforcement are as well. And even people in the art and antiquities trade, I think, are, are, are much more sensitive to it than they, than they used to be. Right, right. I mean, um, I, I mean, it, may, it really makes you think about what, what percentage of objects we see in museums um, or, you know, being dealt by dealers are, are you know, maybe looted or of um, dubious origin, right? You know, if, 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 if it's happening as often as you say, right, it's, it's pretty... That's pretty alarming. Um, and then like in the case of like the, the Benin objects, right. You know, th those are thousands of objects. I mean, this is, this, these are major, major cases. And so, so many objects that have, uh, that are being litigated at the moment, it seems like. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how many are being litigated directly, like in terms of court yeah. actions and that gotcha. sort of thing, but, but there def there certainly are, a lot of either voluntary returns um, or simple seizures by by police or customs mm, authorities and 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 return. Um, the Benin the Benin bronzes um, are you know in a somewhat different category because they were they were taken a long time ago at the end of the nineteenth century by British forces um, and they now, as you mentioned, there are hundreds thousands of them uh, depending on how you categorize them. But they they're scattered largely around the world. You have a, a number of them in, in the UK, a number in um, Germany, and then you have quite a number in the, in the US as well at the Met and in Boston. So, um, I mean, that's, that's been an ongoing campaign, I think, for people in Nigeria and around the world. They're, they're sort of allies in other countries, um, trying to get those, those pieces returned in a, in a significant, meaningful way. So that's something that the museums that, that are in possession of those pieces are having to confront i think quite quite actively even though the items came into their collections you know well you know, sometimes 100 years ago sometimes well over a generation ago yeah yeah and i mean look i i, I imagine most people listening ha are uh you know overseeing objects that that fall into many of these categories uh one one of uh you know special importance we should point out um is uh, objects that were looted by the nazis and uh because that is a, a constant uh threat for um for most people so i is there is there anything that sort of really provoked that or has that just been an ongoing thing since world war ii an ongoing invest provenance investigation well uh, yeah i mean that's in a way that's a whole category unto itself but a very important one I think it plays into what I, you know, that zeitgeist that I talked about, right. this, this idea that simply by possessing an object, if you're a museum, um, that's not enough. You, you need to show how it came into the collection, how it was taken originally, and you need to be honest about that history. And I think for a long time, many museums were, were not, or they were ignorant of it, or they just turned a blind eye. 
And I think now we're in an era where, where that kind of transparency and honesty is the starting point. Like you need, you need that, you need to be honest about it. And then you see what comes. I mean, that might lead to a claim in the future or it might not, but at least you're being transparent, which is part of your public um, duties as a, as a museum. But in terms of Nazi looted art, so that, I mean, there's a long history to that. Um, you're right to point out, you know, from the end of the Second World War, you had the, the famous monuments, fine arts and archives section of the Allied forces, uh, the monuments men of, of George Clooney fame. Mm -hmm. um, and they did a lot. I mean, they returned hundreds of thousands of, of artworks at the end of the war. Um, but the problem was they, they returned them to countries. They didn't return them to individuals. It was just, it was too big a project to start processing them for individuals. So what that meant is that the countries that received some of these works of art, like France or the Netherlands or Italy, um, they weren't necessarily that forthcoming with the survivors from the Holocaust, you mm -hmm. know, who were coming back if they were still, you know, if there were survivors um, or their family members and trying to claim these things. So, so things did go back at the end of the Second World War, but, but in no way was it a complete restitution of, of art. And it really only took, it really took until the 1990s for serious restitution to begin. Um, and what was happening in the 1990s, um, again, you had, you had more publicization of collections, you, you know, you had the, the beginnings of the internet. So it was becoming easier to search collection databases. You didn't have to go and visit individual museums. Um, you had a number of important uh, cases that were coming out. And then the very important uh, seminal Washington conference, which is a, a conference involving 44 uh, rep representatives from 44 countries that took place in Washington, D.C., 1998. And that set the tone for the restitution discussion around Holocaust looted art um, until, until the present, really. Um, and what it said there is that when you can find the uh, heirs or the original owners of Nazi looted art, um, you need to seek fair and just solutions. Yeah. And fair and just solutions has become the, the, the term that's, that's been used in, in relation to Nazi looted art since 1998. It's a very elusive term. I mean, what does fair and just mean? Right. It could mean different things to different people. It could mean one thing to a museum, another thing to a claimant or to a family. Um, but that, at least it, it set the scene and it, it provided at least a framework for, for those discussions and possible collaborations to take place. So, so from 1998 in the Washington Conference, you had a number of, of cases um, where people actually went to court to try to claim back um, Nazi looted art uh, with varying degrees of success. And what's, what's most interesting is as of 2016, so about five years ago in the US, you have a, a law that was passed by Congress called the HERE Act, or the Holocaust Expropriated Art Recovery Act um, for the pedantic among us. And what the HERE Act does is it, it gives a, a more generous limitation period to potential claimants to bring their claims through the U.S. court system. So I think as a result of that act, once the effects of it are, are, are fully felt, we'll see more claims being brought through the U.S. court system, even though these are claims involving artworks that were taken, you know, two or three generations ago. So yes. I think that's, that's also, you know, changed the, the thinking and the landscape in relation to that particular um, type of, of cultural object. Got it. Got it. Um, we're almost at the halfway mark. Uh, Amanda, what's going on in the chat? Anything, any questions for Alex? Yeah, there are a few, but I, I do have a quick follow-up if I may selfishly put my question in front. Do it. Um, Alex, are you finding that a lot of 
or maybe you can tell tell us, is the onus or the burden really on, like, let's say, for example, with Nazi looted art, on the burden, the burdens on the families and the individuals to bring their cases forward or to make claims. Whereas it's sounding like with some of the other um, things we're talking about, countries themselves are coming forward and making offers of of giving back. And I'm just curious, in general, when it comes to repatri- repatriation or restitution, um, who, where does the burden lie? And what maybe is the role of a museum within that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very good question. And I mean, when I when I talked about the the uphill battle and the burden in the before um, earlier, it was it was more in an in an ethical sense that that there's there's an uphill battle in a sense now if you're trying to retain something because there's all this pressure, there's media, uh, maybe donors are pressuring one way or the other. Um, I think that legally, the burden you know just in general in a court case, the burden always is on the claimant, the person or the plaintiff, the person bringing the claim. Um, so they have to prove their case, right? They have to bring the evidence and they have to demonstrate to a judge or a court, you know, what, why they should get an item back and why, why they, they deserve that. Um, but I think in the ethical, at the ethical level, which is often where we're dealing with these things, not in the strictly legal, but in the ethical, I think that's where that shifting mentality plays a role because you have a different view now, I think, from many museum practitioners than you might have had 20 years ago. You have a different view, even even amongst trustees and directors at that level, than you might have had 20 years ago. And, and that's where I see that, that, let's say, the ethical burden being somewhat different. Um, but again, if you go to court, it's, it's about, and if it comes to that, it's about bringing enough evidence as the plaintiff or as the claimant. So the burden, the legal burden still remains with with the person bringing the claim. I think that's starting to shift a little bit in terms of Nazi looted art because of that, the HERE Act from 2016. There have been some cases which show that the courts are are much more favorable to the to the plaintiffs in those kinds of cases, the let's say the heirs of the original victim of Nazi aggression. Um, and the courts are showing themselves more flexible in terms of what they require from, from a plaintiff understanding that you know sometimes records were destroyed in the war you know people were killed by the nazis and so it's very difficult for the heirs of an original victim to put forward you know fully convincing evidence that this belonged to their ancestor and that it was taken and here's how it was taken because sometimes those records no longer are with us so i think the courts are starting to show more sensitivity to that aspect even even in a legal claim so that's been the impact of the HERE Act. And I think that's, again, affected the, the ethical plane as well, because now I think the discussion has to be generally within museums and between museums and, and claimants more, more open-ended, not, not a question of can you, can you prove to us X? It's more a question of let's sit down and talk it over and let's see what we come up with together. That's the ideal, at least. So yeah, Amanda, what's going on in the chat? Any questions for Alex? Sure. So um, Meg posted a really good one. She actually, uh, because we've been talking a bit about art, but obviously there are other objects of cultural heritage that are not specifically art that are involved in this process. And she had asked, is restitution specifically an issue for only art and antiquities? What about natural history specimens or other types of objects? And you talked a little bit about NAGPRA, NAGPRA before and obviously in a lot of cases that has to do with human beings um, and their remains. So it's a different thing. I wonder if you could touch a little bit about that. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, the the whole area of human remains repatriation is 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 a very important one, and actually, in many ways, that that predated a lot of the restitution discussions because, well, you know, NAGPRA dates from 1990, so already over 30 years ago, and those those internal discussions have been occurring within museums since at least as far back as then, uh, if not further. So I think that's like the human remains area is an important one. And some of the issues are, are similar, obviously, um, but many people who claim, you know, the human remains, let's say, of their ancestors would say that this is quite different because these, these, are, these are actual remains, ancestral remains. Uh, they're the bones of our, you know, our, our grandmothers and our grandfathers. And, you know, they need to, there's no, there's no justification. This is the argument from the claimant side. There's no justification for these to be kept in a storeroom in a museum, right? So that's, that's one view. Um, you know, traditionally museums might've countered and said, well, they're here for scientific purposes, you know, better understanding DNA and all the rest of it. Um, and that was a debate that was already happening in the 1990s. But I think from the perspective of a claimant, the the notion that the bones of their ancestors are being kept in a museum is 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 reprehensible and so they they wouldn't they wouldn't even countenance that as a as a possible justification it's a little bit different with cultural objects because as important as cultural objects might be to a to an individual or a community they're still objects they're not they're not necessarily family members so maybe maybe the 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 discourse can be a little bit different in relation to cultural objects, but if they're sacred or ceremonial, uh, you know, in Australia they talk about secret sacred items that you know basically Westerners shouldn't shouldn't even touch or look at. Um, and you have similar things with with native communities in in, in the U.S. and Canada. Um, I mean, those things are they're so closely related to the to the traditions and history of a of a group of a people of a nation that um, you know to. To treat them as somehow as cultural objects, that itself might be offensive to them. So, I think it. I think it kind of depends on what what the objects. I don't want to even say the word objects, but what the what the material might be, um, because as as a result of what it what it is, you might you might you might see that it it fits somewhat differently in that in that discussion that has to be had. But ultimately, I, I think I, I just go back to the point that it it needs to be a dialogue. Um, there needs to be less opposition between parties, between, say, museum and claimant, and less seeing them in opposition, and more trying to engage and bringing, bringing them together, discussing as much as possible, obviously, um, to try to seek workable solutions for both sides. And I think once, once that happens, at least that's what I've seen, when they do sit around the same table, metaphorically or literally, um, they're more able to to be sensitive to the other side, you know, and, and that might be the museum being more sensitive to the claimant and understanding exactly how emotionally connected they are to the, to the material, whatever it might be. Um, and sometimes for the claimant to be sensitive to the museum, like what is the museum doing with it? How is it looking after it, it caring for it, researching it, et cetera. So sometimes just sharing of information can go a long way. And when it's just a letter written one way and then a letter in response and people aren't actually talking and they're speaking across one another, that's when you tend to have these, these breakdowns of, of negotiations or relationships. And, and that's what tends to lead to the, what I would call the bad cases where, where there's no resolution or there's just a bad resolution in the end. Um, so it's all about process and trying to engage both sides as much as possible, openly, transparently, and then allowing them to work out 
uh, a workable solution that works for them. Um, any other uh, questions in the uh, chat for us? No questions, but a, a clarifying point that one of our listeners um, made, uh, which I think is important, and you might have touched a little bit on it, Alex, was uh, that with regards to the rulings that we've seen predominantly in the United States, and um, they clarified only in the New York court system regarding the HEARS Act, that there's not there's not really other jurisdictions around the world that are awarding the same or can giving the same consideration to plaintiffs. Right. Just right. yet. Yeah, that's, a, that's true. Yeah, I, the cases... Um, there was one case uh, that you know, was a New York case where there was showing greater sensitivity to to the the evidence um, brought by the plaintiff in that in that particular case, the Rife Frankel um, decision. And uh, yeah, it's certainly certainly not the case in other countries. Um, and the way it works for Nazi looted art in um, some European countries, or five five European countries, they don't they don't deal with these issues through the court system. They go through um, a, a different route, a different forum, and, and it's through a restitution committee or restitution panel that deals with Nazi looted art claims. So the UK has that, France has something like that, the Netherlands, Germany, and Austria, they have these panels. So if you have, let's say you're representing a family, um, you're the, the heir of a, a victim of the Holocaust, and you want to bring a, a claim in Austria or Germany, you don't go through the court system, you go to this restitution committee, whether it's at the Austrian one or the German one, and you bring a claim to that committee. And those committees, I mean, there have been criticisms of the different committees, but the ideal for those committees is that they, they work less on, on a legalistic basis, and they're more sensitive to the ethical strength of a claim, the moral strength of a claim. Certainly the UK Spoliation Advisory Panel has has approached it that way. They look at the moral strength of the claim um, and they, they I don't want to say they disregard, but they, they lessen the importance of the legal strength or the legal merits of the claim. So that's, those are other ways of doing it. In the US, it tends to be more through um, court litigation and potential settlement between the parties. And then in, in those five European countries, it's more about an alternative process of resolving a restitution claim, specifically in relation to Nazi looted art. Got it. Okay. I have a, I was, so I was, that made me think sometimes there are cases that uh, begin in other countries, but then they, a claim seems to get filed in the United States. Am I correct in remembering that? And yeah, I wasn't yeah. sure, like, what's yeah. the benefit of doing that? Is it because they're looking for a certain type of resolution that they couldn't get there, but our legal system allows for? It? I'm, I'm not sure. But it has to be a, a, a New York or US jurisdiction, right? Yeah. So, um, I mean, probably the, the, the best known case in that respect is the, uh, you know, colloquially known as the woman in gold case, the, the Maria Altman uh, claim that she brought for the, the famous Klimt portrait of her aunt, um, Adela Blockbauer. Um, that, had been, that had been looted by the Nazis from Maria Altman's uncle, Ferdinand Blockbauer, in Vienna um, in 1938-39. And um, that claim, Maria Altman, she survived the war. She, she was a refugee. She came to the United States. She settled in California um, in the 1990s. Um, she tried to bring a claim in, in the Austrian courts, but was unsuccessful because the painting was still in Austria. So, she, you know, that's usually what you do in, in, in the law is you, you go to where, where the object is located or where the defendants are located. And you bring your claim there. Um, she tried but the Austrian system was, was not set up for, for her kind of claim and it was 
putting too much of an onus on her to bring that claim. So she decided to file suit in California instead. And so as a result, you had a case going through the California courts against the country of Austria, um, which is usually quite a difficult thing to do because if you want to sue the government of, or the country of Austria, you usually sue them in Austria. But to sue them in the California courts was, was quite an unusual thing to do. And so Austria defended itself and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court in the US. And the Supreme Court said, no, no, she, could, she can sue Austria, um, various legal technicalities in relation to that decision, um, but she can sue Austria in the US courts. So they were about to start a trial in California for Maria Altman and the other Blockbauer heirs to get back the uh, portrait of Adela Blockbauer, the Klimt painting. Um, and in the end, Austria agreed to have it arbitrated, so an, another alternative form of resolving the dispute, in Austria um, in front of a panel of three Austrian arbitrators. And those arbitrators agreed that this painting should be returned um, to the heirs of, of Ferdinand Blockbauer, including Maria Altman. So she was quite an elderly woman at that point, but she was able to, to get the painting uh, back along with the other heirs. So, um, so that's an example, and, and that sort of thing has happened in other circumstances as well, where you have uh, a claim brought in the U.S. courts, in a sense because I think on the whole it's fair to say U.S. courts have a broader jurisdiction and are generally able to hear these kinds of claims, provided you get through the various legal loopholes, whereas sometimes if you tried to bring a claim in Austria or France or, or Germany, you just be shut out like you wouldn't even have your, your so-called day in court. So, so there has been a tendency, especially since that, that Maria Altman case, which was 2006, uh, 2004, 2006, she got the final uh, decision from the arbitrators in Austria. Um, since then, there has, there has been a tendency to at least contemplate bringing U.S. proceedings, even if it's against a foreign state, foreign country, um, because of that, that precedent. Um, so the, the U.S. tends to be a more, I suppose, litigious environment and where things are settled through, through the courts more than perhaps in, in Europe and, and other countries. And so that, I think, has, has certainly had an impact in how claimants, whether they're families or communities, have, have weighed out their, their options. Yeah, that's how we do it here. So, um, just as a reminder, if you're listening and want to participate, please, uh, you know, sign into your Google or Gmail account and write your uh, comment or question in the chat. Um, so I want to, since, you know, we're all stewards of, uh, various collections and I assume since you're listening that you probably, uh, might even be a stakeholder in this discussion. Um, what, what as 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 people who you know actively you know document collections like what should we be looking for um if uh we're sort of onboarding uh objects uh, that that could have potential you know dubious origins or questionable provenance yeah well i think the the first step is always is always provenance research and the important i mean I, you can't highlight that enough the importance of that that research especially when, when acquiring material or, or when you're about to be the recipient of a gift or bequest. Um, and maybe even that latter, latter category more, because oftentimes now I think the modern practice with acquisitions is you do your due diligence. Right. Um, it's sometimes, I find certain institutions are a bit more lax when it comes to just receiving a gift or donation, right? The, the whole don't look a gift horse in the mouth thing. 
you don't want to start doing all this provenance research when when someone has you know out of their own largesse given over a great collection to your institution, which your institution probably wants to have. Right. Um, but I think that's that's equally important because oftentimes those that you know material that might have been sitting in a private collection for forty or fifty years might be more problematic in a sense than something that's legitimately on the art market today. Not always, but I'm just saying that you just need to be sensitive to the gifts and bequests as well as as the acquisitions, which hopefully most institutions are already. Um, so provenance research is really important. That obviously involves you know resources and money. Um, so it's important to have that the necessary funding for that sort of thing. I mean, we've seen in the UK and in the US like a number of provenance research specialists being hired at institutions. Not enough as there should be, but at least we're seeing that um, Victoria and Albert Museum. In London, just as an example, they have a they have a provenance and spoliation curator, uh, Jacques Schumacher, and I mean he does amazing things in researching the collection and bringing bringing issues um, to the forefront and and making curators aware of what's going on, what the provenance and the history of an item might be. Um, I know that you know you see that at, at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, you see that um, around the U.S. as well. So I think I think that's something that's there, but there probably should be a lot more of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, just real quick, uh, slight, um, a slight tangent. Uh, exfoliation is that another synonym for restitution, repatriation, or is that a different yeah, process? Yeah, uh, well, spo- spoliation is used spoliation. usually in the context of Nazi looted art, like mm-hmm. the Nazis spoliated art from Jewish gotcha. Um But it, what's interesting is, you know, I was looking. Um, revisiting um, the debate, there was a really interesting debate on a lot of these issues, a lot of the issues we're talking about now. Believe it or not, over 200 years ago in the UK Parliament, um, when the UK uh, government was debating whether they should acquire uh, the what were then known as the Elgin Marbles, um, which had been you know, taken out of Athens by, by uh, a British aristocrat who was the ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, Lord Elgin, he'd taken them out of Athens and he was basically penniless and trying to sell them to to the British uh, state. And so there's a very open public debate in Parliament, um, in the UK Parliament in 1816. And they were debating a lot of these issues because there was one side that said we should not acquire this material and then the other side was saying, no, it would be great for the British nation, we should acquire it. Um, And some of the same arguments that you hear today were were being aired way back then. Um, but what's interesting is they actually used the word spoliation even then in 1816 when they were talking about um, those, the opponents, obviously, of, of acquiring the, the marbles from Lord Elgin. They were saying what he did in Athens was spoliation. These were spoliated works. Mm. So that term has actually been used quite, quite a lot over the, over the years. But I think now, usually when you, when you hear about spoliated art, it relates to uh, Nazi looting um, in the 1933-45 period in Europe. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So, um, so say, let's just do a hypothetical. If, uh, if we do find something of, uh, questionable origins, what, uh, what's the process look like if we want to uh, draw attention to it and look into it more and possibly even, you know, consider restitution, et cetera. Yeah. So I think, I think the first step is always transparency um, so if that information is known um, and you're relatively certain about it, um, is just making that information available through the website and through museum publications. Um, it doesn't have to be like, you don't have to 
wave flags around it and you know make a big deal of it but just let it be known and be be transparent about it i think that's the always the first step um not hide the not hide behind the institutional wall not hide the information but just be transparent and and come what may you know as i said before that might lead to a claim or it might not or it might lead to um, the invitation of people who might have a better understanding of that object into the collection to better understand it and to work with it. Maybe you'll you'll learn more about it through through that process. So I think transparency is is, is the first step. Um, and um, you know, have it always. I think it's always important to have a policy in place around restitution repatriation. Again, that's publicly available. That's on the website, so that the world knows how your institution deals with with these issues. And as long as you follow the steps that are laid out in your policy, um, I think you, you can ultimately lead to, to a positive resolution, whatever that might be. And that might be obviously the object going back or the object remaining where it is with maybe better understanding of, of its history. So whatever, whatever the outcome, I think transparency and then the, the existence and the promotion of a policy on restitution repatriation for an institution is, is the best practice. Yeah. So, um, who who are the be the the parties involved in a, in a case like this? I assume you need some sort of um, specialized legal representation. Who who else is involved with this? Well, I don't know about the legal representation. Oh, yeah? I, well, I don't know if maybe in the U.S. context um, for various reasons, but um, I, I I tend to think that the more lawyers involved. The, the worse it, it tends to be because because again it looks oppositional yeah. and I think the you know this this idea of like two parties arguing before a court is, right. is not the right model I mean sometimes it comes to that if there's a real disagreement about a certain fact or, or an outcome it might come um, to that but that American shouldn't way, necessarily man. be <laughs> 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 nothing wrong nothing wrong with that I mean that's why I say in the U.S. context it might be it might be different I mean if if I were a claimant and I saw that you know a big wealthy museum in the u.s had material that might have come from i don't know my family many years ago yeah. the best thing i might think of doing is is hiring a lawyer who knows this material for sure right. um but i don't i'm not sure if you know lawyers letters back and forth between the claimants representatives and the museum's in-house counsel is necessarily the best way of of trying to engage with the issue as, yeah, as yeah. equals to a certain extent yeah it's good to know but but I think I think the the process if there is a, a policy in the in the institution and it's it's made clear what that policy is it's available on the website I think you can never go wrong with that because it's it's made clear to claimants what they what hoops they have to get through like before you know maybe you'll sit down with them what they have to show to just to demonstrate they're not just the guy off the street making a claim yeah. um, and then and then it also makes clear internally for the institution you know, what steps, like who, who's the contact person? When does the director get informed? When does the board get informed? When does the board make the decision? How does the board make the decision? You know, can the claimant make an appearance before the board at one of their committee meetings? Like all that kind of stuff. I think those are the details that a good policy should, should deal with whatever, the, it, whatever it includes or doesn't include. Yeah. And then it, I mean, from, cause I've talked to claimants and on, from their side, they tend to say if, if, if there's a clear process and a policy in place, that's the best for them. Like they understand that they can work with that. I think the worst cases in the past have generally been when when it's a bit ad hoc and maybe it's a small institution or it's a big institution with so many people, it's hard to keep track of the different roles and the different claims. 
But either way, when, when there's no real clarity and it's, you know, maybe they've written a letter and they haven't heard back for six months, do they write another letter? Do they call? Who do they talk to? And then that just leads to growing frustration. And then it starts to be more oppositional. Then it's like, you know, you screwed us over. Now we really want it back. Now, you know, now it's like all or nothing. And I think you need to just diffuse those situations early on, which is not possible in every single situation, but that should be the aspiration as much as possible. Right, right, right. Um, I have one more question, but before I get to that, um, Amanda, any last comments, questions in the uh, chat there? Um, just some discussion amongst people. Uh, Raj, thank you, Raj, for joining us today. Um, asked a really good question. She was curious what ha- other institutions had provenance researchers on staff and what that looks like, which might be an inspiration for others to consider having a position like that on staff or within your collections department. Um, and then you got, you also got some support there, Alex, from another chat uh, participant, Sarah, who says, don't hire a lawyer. <laughs> hire a provenance researcher. I hope there aren't too many lawyers listening to, to this. <laughs> I always think it's quite funny, though. Most, yeah, that'd be real interesting. Um, it is always funny, though. Lawyers tend to not recommend lawyers. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically like uh, bringing bringing up some heavy ammunition and saying, well, I don't really want to use this, but you know, it's, it's, you you automatically put someone on the defensive. Um, So um, it just, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Finish. Well, it's based on everything we've been talking about today. Um, It sounds a lot like mediation. If that's the, if that's the word we want to use, that's the one that's popping into my head. Seems like a really great place to be in when it talk, when we're discussing things like this, because they're important, they're personal, um, for all the reasons you actually just listed, Alex. And I was wondering earlier in our talks, because you had mentioned like some claimants, you know, sometimes they just want what what's, what belongs to their family or their, their people back and they don't even want to have an acknowledgement of uh, wrongdoings or anything. They just want to, you know, move on. And I would imagine trying to start those relationships are probably some of the hardest steps in a process like this. That was, it. that was the comment. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 def- definitely, definitely. But I, I mean, even even some of the big institutions in in the UK, I think they've they've done quite well in, you know, trying to change the mentality from what it used to be and being more open. And sometimes, inv- you know, not sometimes. They this is often the default now is like inviting them into the collections. You know, if it's a if it's a particular group or family, you know, come in and see the object, handle the object or group of objects. You know, give them time and space for doing that. And you know, even something as small as that, it diffuses the situation. Um, it shows that they can have a kind of access. You know, it might not be exactly the access they would want, but at least it gives them a certain uh, temporary access. Let's say to the objects. Um, you know, which might have ceremonial importance or might have uh, fam- familial importance and so they'll they'll be able to to at least handle them and see them and understand them and get information about them and sometimes that i mean sometimes not always but sometimes that can satisfy uh people they, they might say well this is a positive outcome or they might say this isn't enough i mean that that can be a result as well it's not it's not the panacea it's not going to solve all the problems but it's i think it's there as, as an option that allows museums to, again, engage with the claimant, whoever they might be, um, and to potentially lead to some kind of, some kind of workable solution uh, between the two sides. Yeah. 
Um, just in terms of the, the provenance researcher uh, question, um, I can, I'll get a list together because I don't want to do an injustice by mentioning some and not others. Um, but there's a, there, you know, these are great people, very active in the, in the discussions as well as in their work that they do day, day to day. Um, so we'll put that list together and then I guess you guys can send yeah, that we'll, out to your, to your, yeah, uh, to your we'll put it out as part of the resources in the, uh, the description for the, on the YouTube channel and on the ARCS website and on the podcast as well. So, well, you know, it's, it's really interesting because like so much of the legislation, uh, in, in addition to all the cases that seem to follow have been really recent, you know, in the last five to 10 years. And, uh, I'm just wondering, you know, to, to wrap things up here, where do you see us moving from here? Like what, what, what's the future of, uh, of the topic look like? Well, um, I'm notoriously bad at predicting things, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> I try to avoid it now. I've learned my lesson. Um, but I, I, I don't see any signs of things subsiding because of the reasons that I mentioned. I think the online environment, you know, online data, access to collections, resources, et cetera, I mean, that's not slowing down. And in a sense, that's increased uh, through the pandemic. I also think the pandemic might have stalled temporarily stalled some of the restitutions and repatriations just for logistical reasons. And I think those will start to take up again. And then, it, and then the point about law enforcement working together across international boundaries, I think that's continuing apace as well. So I, there, there are no indications that it's going to slow down or stop anytime soon. I think if anything, it, it, it will increase, but um, yeah. I'll always, I'll always hold my breath a little bit because, because, because of my bad track record in <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Future, <laughs> of course. Uh, you know, if you want, I'm I'm happy to put some money down on this and <laughs> see see who's right. Uh, <clears throat> well, uh, we want to thank you so much for your time here today. Um, before we uh, wrap up, I want to give you a little bit of time to um, to talk about your book. So tell us about the book and uh, when we can get it and where we can find it. Sure. Thanks. Thanks, John. Um, yeah, so the book uh, Restitution, the Return of Cultural Artifacts, uh, is, it's coming out at the end of September this month in, in the UK, um, and it'll be available in, in, in the US markets uh, by the end of the year. There's a bit of a, a delay between the UK and the US. Um, and it's published by Lund Humphreys. I, it's, it's trying to show at a very high level all of the issues, a lot of the ones we've, we've talked about, not just for a museum audience, so it's a in a way for a broader audience. So it's, it doesn't just talk about some of the museum issues that we've dealt with, but it also talks about the art trade um, and, and private collections and things like that. So it, uh, it covers you know, the issues, whether it relates to the, the debate over the Parthenon marbles, which I mentioned, the Nazi looted art, antiquities, uh, indigenous uh, objects and human remains, um, and, and the colonial era material in, in museums, especially in Europe. So I tried to cover everything in a fairly short uh, space and, and to try to show both sides because I, you know, traditionally I've always tried to understand both sides, where they're coming from, and just to, just to better comprehend what's happening in the world around us so we can, we can try to react accordingly. So right. that, that's what's there in the book. Um, yeah, as I said, it will be available in, in the U.S. Um, probably in November, but by the end of the year. But it can be pre-ordered, you know, today on the through this through the link that's on the chat. Great, great. So yeah, the the link is to the publisher, correct? That's right. Great, great. So, 
Well, um, with that, uh, I want to thank you so much for making time out for us today um, and uh, discussing discussing the uh, importance of these issues because it's, uh, as you said, it's really just ramping up and uh, continues. It's going to eventually affect us all, it seems like. So, um, lastly, let's, uh, let's round things out with uh, our... Uh, final mentions. Thanks for everyone who uh, participated in the chat and listened along. Um, we want to um, make sure that everyone knows that you can. We have the the chat, um, not the sorry, the chat will be available uh, on the YouTube link uh, after the fact, and the podcast will come out on Friday, uh, always the Friday after the chat. Um, and we'll have uh, all of these resources compiled on the description, so you can see them there. Um, I also um, want to uh, highlight the fact that uh, you know we <laughs> we we come out with the uh, the arcs chat every uh, first Tuesday of every month, and the next one is going to be on Tuesday, October fifth, and the topic is uh, still awaiting confirmation, so we won't unveil it yet. But uh, please stay tuned, and um, we also want you to go ahead and hit the subscribe button for. Uh, the ARCS YouTube channel so that you can get some notifications about when we go live and when we post new videos. Um, I mentioned the podcast comes out every Friday after and uh, that is available on Google, Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. So with that, uh, we want to thank everybody for joining us. We think uh, most of you are going back to work now and some of you may be in offices full time and, uh, you know, thanks for making time to uh, to join us and participate. Um, it means a lot. And um, even uh, on today, it's uh, Rosh Hashanah. So thanks. Hopefully you're uh, celebrating that if uh, that is your background and uh, we appreciate everything. So thanks so much and uh, we'll see you in a month. Please take care and stay safe and stay safe and stay safe and stay safe and stay safe.